sure. So I'm here with Will Selman, who is an urban planner and ar are you an architect too? Uh, urban planner. Urban uh, planner. Um, yeah. And uh, he has written a book on dev psychology and urban planning, which is kind of a funny that he found us because they're uh, we, I, I don't know. I don't say the. I don't want to say we're the only blog, but I, I haven't seen a whole lot of people interested in infusing the study of Jung and architecture. Um, but we'd written a little bit about that, so we're excited to have him. He has a new book, um, Tenemos. Am I saying that right? Temenos, That's correct. Okay, my Greek is a little rusty. That's Greek, right? Mine, mine is non-existent, but uh, okay. I know that it's uh, <laughs> it. It's a term derived from uh, ancient Greece. Um, Imagine the plaza in front of an ancient temple. That is, while a temple was built on sacred ground, the temenos uh, basically extends that sacred space out into the city. So that's what hmm. a temenos is. So the sacred space that spills out from the interior of the temple. You know, yeah, it's, it's, it's that, that protected holy space. So would that be kind of like a liminal space that it's a fusion of the, you know, our world and another one, you know, overlapping just a little, like an Irish thin place or something that it's part of the city, but also part of the temple? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and the idea of the book is that both in our civilizational, the point in which we find ourselves in history, as well as urbanistically, we need to start thinking of the entire city in those mm -hmm. terms, not just a special place reserved. Uh, but take as much care and respect for the city as we always have for nature. It sounds like what you're saying is that the, the city should be viewed as not just kind of a utilitarian or practical thing, but uh, a fusion of the practical and the spiritual, you know, that we should be mindful yeah. and, and, and view it as an extension of ourselves. Yeah, and we can see the results of not having done so um, mm -hmm. for... Uh, probably 500 years of this long slow decline uh since the um since the advent of science really yeah um and just a whole complete shift in the fundamentals from which we operate um has changed the places we build not yeah. just as we think and that's well, a, that's a theme that i that runs through the entire book is that the places we build reflect the values we hold. Uh, and that's not working anymore. Those values don't operate well anymore. I I wonder, um, I don't know if you had seen the last kind of you know blog article video that would put out, but um, it's funny what you're saying. Like uh, one of them was about the design of furniture uh, and specifically mid-century modern furniture. And the other one was about um, architecture, what Frank Lloyd Wright's process was, that he wasn't quite a classicist, wasn't quite a modernist. Right. Um, but the argument in it is that we used to think of these things as something that was intentional and beautiful and meant to last and a part of ourself and a kind of a spiritual thing. And then at some point, it just became this practical necessity that we throw it away and that that was to our detriment. You know, even if we have more stuff, even if we have more ability to hoard, um, mm -hmm. it meant that we meant less. And what you had just said, mm -hmm. that the stuff that we, I forget exactly. What the I need to rewind, but the last line that you said is almost exactly the title of the article, except with the word chair, because it was um, you may address uh, the chair, how where we sit tells us where we stand. Yeah, the oh. places we build reflect the values we hold. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, like you're saying, this is an odd combination of subjects to try and tackle, and um, I have 
not until the book was completely written and I had sent it off to a publisher did I come up with a good 30-second elevator speech for what this is all about. Uh, and it's more like 45 seconds instead of 30. But um, well, I think intuitives don't always know what they're writing until it's done. You know, like you, you kind of know you need oh, yeah. to write it. And then later you back yeah. up. Whereas that's the, you know, the, the more sensing and thinking types do not operate that way. They have a blueprint and a plan and then they execute. And a lot of times intuitives feel called to create this thing. And then later you yeah. can be like, oh, wow, that's what I was doing. Okay. Yeah, that's I like did not once. see this thing assembled itself. And I was just a tool very much. I could I could see that as it happened. I was led in various directions that really had no connection, but they all resolved in the end. And right up front, I state um, there's a um, most urban designers, uh, urban planners, I hope, um, know of a book called The Art of Building Cities by Camillo Sitton. Mm. Uh, he was writing in the 1880s. And he was lamenting the fact that things were not going well. Back in the 1880s, he thought that there were serious problems in, in what he was seeing in the way that uh, he was uh, from Vienna, I believe. Um, and in that book, fairly close to the beginning, he says something like this, we can no longer build a beautiful work of art like the ancient Greeks did with the Parthenon in Athens, because we lack, how did he phrase it? Um, we lack an overarching cosmology mm -hmm. and overarching vision that throbs in the lives of the people every day that could be expressed in a work of art like a city. Mm -hmm. um, and so what he was basically saying was that when you are experiencing problems in urban design, the way a city is uh, designed, operates, um, it's just a symptom of a much, much larger um, problem that we're experiencing now and have for hundreds of years mm -hmm. and uh, we're we've gotten to a breaking point um, mm -hmm. and there has to be some sort of a shift not in the way we design we'll keep designing in all sorts of secondary ways uh until we gain some sort of larger vision of what it means to be human mm-hmm well, and, and I think that, that that's always a work in progress, right? You know, trying to figure out who we are, what we are, um, but we're not even trying anymore. You know, we've kind of yeah. given it up, and that's what's sad. I mean, so yeah. I, I'm kind of, I butt heads with people because, um, you know, I'm, I do job psychology and Jungian stuff. And so there's some people who are, you know, very practical. They take that in their Evo psych and, you know, DNA archetypes and whatever. And then there's other people that are kind of new age spiritual, but you lose the psychology of it. It's just kind of too woo woo and, well, I guess everything that I want to think at any point is true and this crystal will cure my scrofula and, you know, it's, it becomes too unscientific. Um, you know, what you're saying that a city should be spiritual, it's like, you know, people um, kind of laugh because it's a trope about like Marie Kondo, you know, basically Jung's idea of ensoulment, you know, that we should have Martin Buber is very much like that, the mystic Martin Buber who wrote I Am Now and that you should have a very personal loving relationship with everything that you interact with animals, people. It, nothing should we've turned into a transaction and it should be something that you know i love this chair because it is beautiful and it matches this thing and i love this because it, you know something that you think about 
And um, like, so when you're talking about, you know, a lot of people kind of make fun that Marie Kondo is saying, you know, hold each thing in your house and say, does this spark joy? And if it doesn't spark joy, throw it away. You know, there's right. something that, you know, you are happier when you have less stuff. You are happier when you're more intentional, but also the kind of the spiritual component of this stuff can be kind of grating or overdone. And so something like the Parthenon, you know, that's an attempt to find um, a culture of, of what this group of people is, the ancient Greeks. And yeah, it's beautiful and it's held the test of time and influenced, you know, so much stuff. But also, you know, it's kind of propaganda, right? You know, like the Persians are coming and you're getting kind of nervous about the the scary stuff in the East. And so they, they, you know, it's a huge expense. It wasn't like they just had the money lying around. They chose to do this, you know, basically to control the population and to give it a vision of self. And so you know, a lot of them, we're not going to go through the whole Parthenon, but the biggest motif there is this, you know, ordered civilization overcoming a barbaric chaos, chaotic enemy, you know, the, the, and their war against the Amazons is what is, you know, on the outside of it. And then, you know, the over the Titans overthrowing the gods at certain, or the gods overthrowing the Titans and creating this new order. And But it's very much about what they were trying to give the people a, a vision of who they were, because it was a time of crisis. The Peloponnesian War is dragging on a little bit long. There's some plague going on. The climate's changing. Like, we're not really sure if we're going to be in charge of all this stuff anymore. We had all these great ideas, but now the blank edges of the map are getting filled in. And, oh, there's other philosophies. You know, we're not the, we're not the only game in town anymore. Right, right. And, and it's an attempt, you know, it, so it, it is gorgeous. And this attempt to provide a spiritual blueprint of this is who we are. This is our identity. But it's also kind of propaganda by the people being like, yeah, come on, look, this is who we are. You know, so, you know, both of the practical and the spiritual are part of these things. Um, yeah, and it's it's um, you mentioned the sort of uh, tension between you know traditional Jungian thinking and the side of it go that goes a little bit more on the woo woo uh, touchy feely side, and I I sort of touch on that a little bit in so the first the book is divided up into four sections and the first section uh, I focus really on an attempt maybe just for myself to explain what it is, you know, what is my, my personal vision. There's uh, a lot of your biographies in the book too. I mean, you talk about uh, concept relevant to architecture and design, but then you talk about how you dealt with that concept personally, you know, in your oh, life. Oh yeah. I, I, um, I was, uh, I was raised for several years as a small child in Paris. Um, and um, so I got the opportunity to have that, experience of walking down particular streets um, embedded in me very early. Um, and, and then after that, I grew up for a number of years on a small beach cottage um, on Chesapeake Bay, um, isolated by salt marshes. So the most intense urbanism and complete wild untamed nature uh, back to back. And so that, that has given me a particular um, understanding, I think that is that I find very uh, valuable, but that sort of speaks in a way to the the tension that I see between spirituality and religion. Mm -hmm. and in the the spiritual world these days, uh, not just in the secular world, but the spiritual community generally, the New Age world, there seems to be just an absolute um, uh, total lack of respect for religion. Mm -hmm. Religion is, is false. It's fake. It's a front. But I'm spiritual. I've got mm -hmm. the real. Um, 
And which is, you know, of course, what every every cult leader says, you know. Yeah, right, right. It's a it's a great tool, um, um, in in the way that you can manipulate, um, control for better or or worse. Uh, I think that there are it, that can be helpful and useful. Uh, you just better make sure you've got the right leader. Um, well, I think the, you you look for the people who like they have a monopoly. You know, that becomes the problem. Is when you know, I just have right. to. Yeah, I really want you to have this great thing. It's just you know, the one, really the only one that can can do it. That's the it's it's, that's it's the only way that's going to work. Everything else, yeah. And and therapy after fifty thousand years. Run, run therapy when you hear that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> None of the yeah. things work. It's the only thing. Yeah, for fifteen hundred a session. Well, I'll take care yeah. of you. Yeah. Um, but we've we've been at this for you know, depending on, um, the. The source material that you that you choose. There's a um, archaeologist anthropologist named uh, von Petzinger, uh, and she has done just amazing work on cave art uh, specifically. And her understanding is that um, a sort of a great awakening took place in the evolution of the species. Um, a couple of points roughly 200,000 years ago, and I think that's right. Check me on that. And then again, about 50,000 year, years ago, humans started um, being involved in activities that had no practical purpose. You're talking um, about like the Venus of Ellendorf and the, the, the Venus figurines? Those, all those sorts of things. Um, art in general, music mm -hmm. uh, started to appear things that didn't, that weren't practical necessities of life, um, but apparently were really, really important to our ancient ancestors. Um, and so there is this, I, I imagine that this is the memory that we have of um, the source material for the garden of Adam and Eve. You know, when we woke up mm -hmm. at some point in history, um enough consciousness developed in us out of our animal instinct mm -hmm. and we looked around and said oh my god what what am i what's going on mm -hmm. what am i supposed to be doing um and the whole story of mythology religion um poetry ritual <clears throat> is a process over the past fifty thousand years and more of figuring out that question, who we are, what we're meant to be doing here. And the idea of the book is to imagine the city is the classroom in which that exploration can take place. Mm -hmm. uh, because the natural world, that's been our home since forever. Um, but more and more, the world is urbanizing. Uh, I don't have that daily experience. Uh, with wild nature, but I do have a daily experience with concrete and asphalt and buildings and so forth. Um, how can we infuse those settings with the same sort of intentionality uh, and do it on a conscious, intentional level at this point? Mm -hmm. So that's what, that's what I'm trying to get at. 
So, um, I mean, I think that does a pretty good job of explaining, you know, how are you, what is urban planning, you know, what do you do? And then what is kind of Jungian depth psychology and what do those have to do with each other? You know, but sound that probably gives, you know, the audience a good primer of, you know, without being super specific about what an urban planner does, you know, how, how somebody operating with the lens of depth psychology, you know, what that is, and then how those two things could, could inform each other. Um, you know, how much of, have you ever seen Adam Curtis's documentaries? Like all watched over by Machines of Loving Grace, any of those? I don't know that name at all. It's interesting. Um, they're very loose. The thesis is very loose and implied. You know, there's no over, there's never like, oh, we set out to discover this. And then, but we, what we found was even more, you know, it, it's very just like weird clips of culture and this overlapping of anthropology, design, philosophy. Um, psychology and and the way that those kind of inform each other, but you know how much of the destruction of what you're saying, you know, that intentionality being taken out, comes from. Well, I don't even I hesitate to even say where it comes from, but you have culture that kind of moved everything away to like a consumed experience that was the smallest part of what we do or the least of what we do. It's like okay, I'll live in a house that I hate, so and I won't buy the stuff that I want so that I can go on a cruise, or you know, I'll go into an office that I spend ninety percent of my time in that's awful. Um, because I want to be able to afford to go on vacation to this other place that's nice, you know, that I'll, I'll be in for this teeny tiny fraction of my life. But it's almost like the point of life became not our routine, not what we do from 90% of our time, you know, in this yeah. strange way. Yeah. Um, it became about these experiences elsewhere. Um, yeah, it's like we, we, we have such low expectations of our immediate surroundings. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, there's such a um disparity between what we see every day mm -hmm. and what we can find um as advertised in you know a beautiful cruise to little little seaside towns on the coast of italy or something like that um mm -hmm. our ancestors did things so much better than than we did and it's because of the the things that we hold as being more important and for us, so what would you say that is now? You know, what is the thing that we hold to be more important than our ourself, our our, our intentionality, our it, soul? What, what, what we, what's the altar? Well, in a you know, two two different directions to go with that. One is very specific, and I'll say it's the car. Mm. The car gives you freedom, mm -hmm. right? You can go anywhere because I've got mm -hmm. a car. Um, but we spend so much time and effort making sure that the car gets everything it needs so we can go anywhere that we don't create a part of annual you know expenditure by families and it's probably about the same you know poorer people drive a cheaper car but it's the same percentage of income as the richer person driving the nicer car but it becomes this thing that you have to have i think the uh <clears throat> i saw somewhere that uh, car ownership is equivalent to a fifty thousand dollar a year mortgage you want a nicer house get rid of one of your cars um i'm car free now um i had a, a three hour a day commute for several years um and every year i got rear-ended at a stoplight <laughs> and the last time was by a drunk driver doing 45 miles an hour three cars were totaled one guy was uh in rehab for two years um, and I decided not to replace the car. My intention in moving back here to Washington, D.C. was to be car free. Uh, it's the metro, my bicycle, my feet. Um, and if I need to, I can rent a zip car. Mm -hmm. um, 
So we've created uh, a mindset of mobility to the point where we've completely forgotten that, you know, there ought to be a place to go to. Mm-hmm. That's part of a larger <clears throat> story that um, I guess Jung would speak to. Um, and that's basically the transition from a, I don't know what the uh, traditional mindset to the modern scientific mindset, um, which basically arose, eh, what, 15, 1600s, basically when science started to take over. And you can sort of see this in the history of, um, um, that's Western civilization as a whole, but alchemy specifically. Uh, Alchemy goes back two, 3,000 years, and it was always basically a spiritual practice, um, Mm -hmm. an an effort to understand the spiritual realm by the processes of the physical realm. Mm -hmm. Um, And somewhere around the... 15, 1600s, 1600s, definitely. Um, that became the the precursor to what we know now as chemistry, uh, a very, very different way of thinking. And you can see the decline of alchemy coinciding with the rise of science. Um, and so now nothing... Well, and, and just to kind of parse what you're saying for the audience there, you know, yeah. if you're not familiar, because even people who like Jung, you know, alchemy uh, famously ended his affair. <laughs> Tony Wolf, Jung had him yeah. and Ajay Dwa yeah, for a while. And he got to an alchemy and it, it ended. Um, a yeah. lot of people have a hard time following Jung there or uh, or they don't know what it is. And so yeah. basically, you know, you have pre-scientific, you know, evidence-based practice, you have people basically personifying nature. They assume that this stuff works like us, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, the moon's not a planet. This is something about me in relationship to me because I need it. And so the projection of our own psychology into science, basically assuming that, you know, lead would turn into gold and that chemistry and mineral mineralogy would work based on the way our own psyche works. You know, it's it's this projection. So people are kind of telling on themselves. So when you look at alchemy, there's all this stuff about you take the thing that's not very good, but then you purify it. And this is a gross oversimplification, but then you purify it and it goes through trials and it gets stronger and it gets harder. And then you get the unique good center and the gold is extracted from the chaff. And there's this idea of psychological growth and spiritual development that we were sort of assuming science worked like because that's how we work before we had science. And then chemistry comes and says, actually, these things don't care about you at all and they have nothing to do with you. You know, there's their neutrons and electrons and this stuff is just completely random and arbitrary and you are unimportant um, and you've got to memorize all these numbers if you want to do anything, which has a place. And so that's kind of what you're saying Mm -hmm. is that we took ourselves out of the world or we, we took, you know, our spirituality out of the world a little bit too much. Um, and I don't want to speak for you, but uh, just to, to clarify mm-hmm. people that may not be familiar with some of those terms. No, that's, that's, uh, that's a great summation. And, um, so when you, when you make that sort of transition, you're, you're dropping off, you know, there's 50,000, 200,000 years of human experience that you're starting to ignore, um, for the sake of um something that's you know really what 500 years old maybe uh, mm-hmm. a very very dramatic shift in thinking and science and the technology that grows out of it have done absolute wonders 
Um, but it's come to a point where um, maybe the harm is starting to outweigh the, the benefit. Um, and what's really interesting is that, um, oh, subatomic physics, um, particle physics is getting to the point where it's about as esoteric as any ancient philosophy in the yeah. theory there, the, you know, the point at which energy transitions to matter and so forth. Or, or that something can duly be a particle, a wave and an energy that is partly present in this galaxy, but also disappearing. So maybe it's going another place. I mean, these are what these, I'm not a scientist, but this is what theoretical physics is saying, which is sort of the best right. operating assumption we have right now. Right. One, one thing that I think is related to you kind of talking about, um, you know the the spiritual and the scientific is um my, i'm playing with my webcam here because it's starting to fall um is i mean there, there's two places where i think another author puts jung better than he puts himself like jung is trying to say something and then he he's not able because he's a pretty brilliant articulate guy one of them not is easy to read though no not easy to read um one one is ego and archetype i think edinger when he comes mm -hmm. in and says there's two parts of self there's this existential objective thing that is only what we create and then there is this completely subjective, you know, kind of myopic spiritual oneness, you know, and they, they don't know how to be in the same head. Um, that mm -hmm. kind of existential, the intersection of existentialism and mysticism, I, th I think Edinger summarizes better than Jung. And the other one is Tacy in Edge of the Sacred. He says, you know, that what Jung is saying is that there's these three different levels to us and we haven't quite uh, culturally and we haven't really gotten to the next one yet, but we need it because if we're, mm -hmm. if we're going be saved that's the thing that saves us and the first one is just mythology projection we assume that everything is about us and we project our psychology onto the world and we live in this kind of spiritual myopic place and then science is the second one that develops and says no actually none of this is real you're totally unimportant that's all silly it's not it's not logical and it's not objective so it's not real mm -hmm. um, and you know science gives us these things but it, ultimately, it rings kind of hollow when you're trying to, to to build a society based on the assumption that humans are not important or needed or special or, you know, anything, you know. And that the third layer that he says that he kind of wanted Jung, that he thought that Jung wanted us to attain was this idea that you have, you do have science, that you can operate with an uh, objectivity and a logic, but that you have to be willing to not make that everything and say that there's still an openness to things that we do not understand in a spiritual realm and that there is an openness to uh and it, it's kind of hard to articulate that the third lens because he, you know he's saying like science is important we need it but also we're not really existential creatures we're kind of we're, we're spiritual beings and we need to have a relationship with that and, and one of the ways jung thought that that would happen was through um, theoretical physics you know he drinks a lot of uh, red wine with uh, Polly and uh, oh yeah I've been mm -hmm. I've been reading the um, uh, dream analysis that Jung did of of Polly and his mm -hmm. uh, world clock and, mm -hmm. and um, uh, yeah that's it Jung and Jung was very much a shaman uh, mm -hmm. in, in that sense of in fact he related his uh, uh, clinical methodology to um, uh, to shamanic or uh, not shamanic. I'm sorry. Um, um, alchemical processes, mm -hmm. you know, seven steps and so forth, five steps. Mm 
Um, but I think that's that's what is needed um, in a in a civilizational sense right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, that bringing together of those opposites. Um, and so we, in in thinking about cities, uh, our cities look like infrastructure now because mm-hmm. that's what you think of them as. Um, you know the the overhead wiring, the electrical um, transformers we see on telephone poles. Mm-hmm. You just think if your house was built that way with wires running across the living room and, and so forth. No, we hide that sort of thing in conduits uh, behind the walls because it's mm-hmm. not attractive. But out in the public realm, you know, we don't think about that at all because it's it's just it's just stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and to bring back that sort of soulful artistic mm-hmm. valuation of place i mean just the idea that we could bury power lines you know you don't have to just be looking at like wires and crap and transit right. you know this stuff could just be under the ground if we wanted right. to, to spend the money to value that you know more right. um I, I think one of the big examples for me is like um where we send our kids to school you know american high schools and middle schools are a bit like prisons they're black windowless you know or not maybe not black but they're windowless cinder blocks surrounded by fences and mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes barbed wire and it's just like what are you teaching your children you know right right, right. and I, I i don't know i just i feel like one of the one of the idea that you're talking about is kind of scary to people because i mean when you look at the public sphere like one of the fastest ways to get people to just have this emotional reaction to you and hate you and attack you is if you just say nicely you know um Hey, could we just dare to maybe imagine that the world could be a little bit better than it is now? You know, <laughs> if you just say, "Hey, this thing that everyone agrees is really bad and sucks," could we, could we maybe could we do just work on it? it? It's like you know, you but you see people who just gently say that, and it's like left and right, and you know, people are like, "Oh, you're a Democratic pedophile, or you're a Trump MAGA," whatever. Like right, the guy's right. just saying that like our life is not great and it's yeah. going in a bad direction, and maybe we could make a baby step to, to yeah. a, a thing that was a little bit better. Um, well, I I enjoyed your your interview with um, Duwani uh, mm-hmm. some time ago, and he's the only person I've ever seen. Uh, I've worked with him on on a few occasions, um, and as an urban planning consultant for um, for thirty years now, I've been in enough public settings where I've been attacked as a communist and um, a um, Nazi in the same meeting. Um, <laughs> it's lots of fun. But, uh, well, and then the, the third political party in America that nobody talks about, or I call them like the radical centrists, you know, it's like the people who they're like, well, the truth always has to be between two bad ideas. And you're like, what? I mean, does it? I mean, this is maybe, <laughs> you know, like it's like they're too, they don't want to be seen as like extreme or bad or anything. And so they don't yeah. stand for anything and they just have to compromise with whatever. And I mean, yeah. both of them do it, both kind of parties do it. But, you know, you, you'll just see these things where, Somebody was like, look, you have to make a decision. Do you want to pull out of the war? Do you want to do this? And there were just a lot of times where Obama would be like, what if we just send half the amount of troops and do nothing? And it was just like, man, like, you know, or, you know, and you see, you know, Romney and people do the same thing where it's like, they're just too afraid to be like, yeah, this is the right direction. I'm going to go there. And I mean, that's probably a bigger voter base. Those kind of being offensive is the worst crime you can commit now, I think. They're believing in something, you know, it's. 
Yeah. Just, but what's interesting, I, I was going to mention Duane. He's the only individual I've ever seen um, in a public setting to be able to look a, an audience in the eye and say, what you're doing sucks. This yeah. is pathetically bad. Mm -hmm. And there are so many ways to improve and you're too stupid to do something about it. He'll literally use those terms and people love him for it. Um, well, and I think that's why you get innovators in America kind of have this trickster energy, you know, like this, mm -hmm. because they we're so, um, I know we have such a weird relationship to like the Messiah complex and, you know, but like, because the culture really likes the status quo, doesn't want things to change. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, somebody could never come in like Duane and say, hey, you know, Paris does this and this works better. And like, he has to be like, no, screw y'all. This blows. Like, do that. No, no. <laughs> like, and um, and you get innovators do that. I mean, I, I, I see that in psychology because I don't, I don't think therapy as a whole is in a great place. Um, you know, we basically, you know, over relied on cognitive therapy, which meant that which cognitive therapy is fine for some things. But. It meant that we only study therapy that we can turn into a number. And I mean, the, the therapy modalities that you can turn into an objective number suck. They don't have the intuition of the clinician. They don't have the intuition of the patient. They don't make room for a, a relationship, frankly. And they don't treat trauma, you know, because they're only talking about behavior and behavior is the last step in trauma. Um, but you see that in all these fields. These people have to kind of come in with it takes somebody with enough energy to kind of blow something up in order for there to be change. I mean, it doesn't seem like other countries, other cultures work like that. Um, I, I think we are sort of at the, 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 what, the cutting tip, the cutting edge. The, um, when I, when I think of the, the long, slow decline of Western civilization, um, like Jung said that the scariest place on earth was the United States. Uh, he was, yeah. he was, I think he was scared of it too, you know, scared of the U S because of our incredibly powerful tools that we have and the naive way we think about them. And it was such a new country and such a big country and becoming yeah. such a powerful country. I mean, this other stuff, it had gone through these experiments, you know, early on and the U S was just the wild yeah. west. I mean, yeah, it's like, well, we actually do this now, but it's like giving an AR 15 or whatever they are uh, to a 12 year old. Um, yeah. You know, here's this, here's this big thing. I can do anything with it, but there's not the, the life experience and the wisdom to, to make good use of it. Um, so how do you go about starting to change that? And I don't think that you do in one sense, I'm pretty pessimistic. Um, you know, it, it's like when ancient Rome started to collapse, there mm -hmm. was um, a real loss of respect for its traditional religions. Um, you know, Jupiter and Minerva, yeah, 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 they're they're all these ancient gods, and but they're they're silly and shallow, and they have all these domestic fights amongst themselves, and there's just nothing there anymore, and. What the Romans would do 2,000 years ago is take pilgrimage to ancient Egypt, because there, you know, the ancient religion was even older, and it was mysterious. There were all sorts of strange rituals, and the gods were different, and that was somehow respected, um, because the old was collapsing, and the new, which 
eventually became Christianity had not yet arrived. And I think that's sort of what's happening here now. Mm-hmm. Christianity, in a sense, has run its cycle um, through history. Um, and it's, I think I, I would be willing to say, it's as great a source of wisdom as the world has ever seen. But mm-hmm. we sort of sucked the juices out of it. Um, and it has devolved into a, a, a cultural um, dinosaur, in a sense. Um, the life has gone out of it. And I think that's kind of a natural cycle. Um, well, these things like, never quite die. You know, they, they put on new clothes, but you, right. you have a language you cling to for a while. Right. And it and becomes irrelevant, and then you rediscover the same thing, you know, right. with, with a new a, language. Or a different or... language, different symbols, and so forth. But we're in that in-between time, and that hasn't happened yet. And so we're we're going off in all sorts of odd directions, whether it's um, New Age spirituality or MAGA or whatever it is. We're looking for anything um, mm-hmm. until we settle on something new. Um, and I'm my sense is that the city can be a point at which that something new um, can, it can be the soil in which that something new, that new vision uh, can take hold. And it would be great to prepare um, for that in some mm-hmm. fashion by designing um, a container for soul to come into, which in the past was what we did. Yeah. It was a container. Well, we're, we're kind of mixing metaphors here, you know, but the, yeah. the metaphor does work as a, as a microcosm or a macrocosm. You know, Jung saw religion as this thing that sort of contains the unconscious so that you have, until you're ready to hold it, you have something telling you how to live. And then the goal isn't just to be a slave to that forever. The goal is to have it protect you, you know, like a mother protects a child until they're ready to take on more responsibility. And then you start to understand these things with a little bit more nuance and you start to be able to, to do them. But the city sort of does the same thing. You know, we don't have cities that like protect people. We don't have cities that provide a nice space. Um, and I mean, I would be surprised if most people in America even know what an urban planner is or that it exists. I mean, I think we have this kind of libertarian attitude that I buy this box of land and then I build my stuff in that box. And if you want to build something, then you put it here. The idea that there's like a, a central vision that says like, hey, wouldn't it be nice if there was a park in the middle of the city? Wouldn't it be nice if there were bike paths that crossed this so they, that we don't get people killed by cars, but you can also ride a bike? Wouldn't it be nice if there was a mm-hmm. pedestrian walkway that went over here so that you couldn't just walk one street, you could walk across the whole city? And, you know, I don't, I don't think people know, you know, in your, your, in your world they do, but I don't think the average person knows that that's something that happened. No, they're, they're often shocked when they walk into the planning office to get a zoning permit. What do you mean their rules? And regulations and then they get angry you know. and then get well and then they get angry if somebody takes the next door property and wants to build a coal refinery or something next to them mm-hmm. you know if i get to do anything i want then so does he mm-hmm. uh, and that doesn't that doesn't accrue to um civilization mm-hmm. and, are you are you familiar with james Herman, the union analyst and writer I don't even know um, if he was a Jungian analyst by the end of his life. What, what was the name again? James Hellman. Oh, good Lord. I've got him. Um, uh, a lot of this book started after I read City and Soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but that's pretty but much he's all. He's interesting to me because he is like, you take, 
Uh, well, I mean, Hillman's career is interesting. I mean, he he's brilliant and he has a lot of really good ideas. And then he also is kind of a crank in a lot of areas and like really loud about it. Um, and, you know, he he like a lot of male Jungian analysts kind of goes into the woods by the end of his life. Um, but to me, there's always like he was that he was that those are all very American archetypes. Like he took Jung's ideas and brought them to America and kind of got eaten by its own thing. I mean, there's like he's a little bit of a hustler. You know, he grew up in Atlantic City. He like here's the people, you know, calling on the boardwalk. And there's he's kind of talking about spirituality and union things in, in that way that, you know, there's something to it. But it's also a little bit of a grift, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I always got the sense that um, nothing ever satisfied Hillman. Mm -hmm. uh, he no. was never satisfied. And I got the sense it was because, um, you know, he was from one of those early generations uh, right after Jung, um, and he felt that he should come up with some some great grand, some great new thing, and it never quite happened. Yeah, he's got lots of of little gems scattered all around, but they don't ever coalesce into uh, the full formed. Um, a lot of his books are kind of like J.J. Abrams movies where it's like line by line, they work, you know, shot by shot. And then you you back up and you're trying to sit with the argument right. of it. It's like, wait a minute, right. if if you're going to shoot the missiles at the Star Trek ship, then why would you put the people in it if you thought that, you know, none of it works. It's just a compelling right. scene to see these things right. open, you know. Uh, and Hillman kind of writes like that. Um, but when I talk to Leon Creer, it's funny because um, I've always been kind of afraid um I, I've always kind of uh, related to Hillman and, and felt like my own worst impulses that I needed to check were ones that he overindulged. And, you know, you, you feel that energy. When I talked to Leon Creer, he was like, oh, I met this guy a long time ago in Zurich. He was a lot like you, James Hillman. Do you know who he is? And really? he told him, Creer told me that Hillman said um, to him, you know, America, you go to Europe and the buildings are supposed to pull your eye upward so that you're always in communication with the divine. You're always contemplating heaven and the lines go up and you go into American buildings and we put a drop ceiling and we put fluorescent lights to make you not look up, to make you stare down into hell. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Uh -oh. Yeah. Yeah. And so there, there are, you know, with that, it's really hard to find good models here um and the last third of the book i guess um i focus on um where i am now washington dc um what lafont did in his design for washington dc was very much a political and spiritual metaphor um and we don't we don't see that anymore. We don't we don't know about that. And partly that was because uh, Lafont didn't tell people what he was up to. Mm -hmm. uh, but the whole story of Lafont and the way he designed Washington, um, he and George Washington very much held a vision of um, the United States becoming the grand global empire built on ideals um was, was and so on, the well novus order seclorum a new world order mm -hmm. and so many conspiracy folks now are worried about you know this new world order that's coming well it was there from the beginning that was the whole point on the on the top of the washington monument right yeah 
there it is. And well, the Washington Monument has an amazing story by itself. Um, but what Lafont was doing, he didn't just lay out the streets. Uh, what he started off by doing was creating what I call a trellis. Uh, mm -hmm. Just like in your backyard, you, you build a wire trellis um, mm -hmm. so that vines can grow up and life can flourish. Um, he created a geometric trellis um, out of which the street system grew and the location of buildings were placed. Um, and it was based um, on what we now know as sacred geometry, which again is sort of getting over there into the woo-woo side of things. But They were into that, though. They didn't see that there. You well, know, we study them, but we don't study their assumptions. You know? Right, right. We, we love what they did, but we don't respect their their methodology and when you're saying that people don't know that about dc i would argue that design is something that we don't see we feel right and so a mm -hmm. ton of people have these emotional reactions to this stuff because it works but you start explaining it to them and they're like no 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 i didn't know that so that's not why i like dc and it's like so many people that have lived there you say oh i'm going to dc to see my sister or something they're like oh Washington, i live there and then the cherry blossom and you you know it's like they have this relationship to it because it's different, but they don't yeah. they don't know it. I mean, it's our capital. We don't even know what it looks like. You watch movies and they're always like the snipers up there and the Jason Bourne or whatever. And they're like Washington, D.C. and they fly over it. And it's like New York or Toronto. There's like these, these right. You know, right. <laughs> like 73 buildings. And it's like D.C. is flat. Like it's it's intentionally like it's not. You can't right. build that. It doesn't. We don't even know what it looks like. You know, you're able to substitute yeah. this wild stuff in movies and people don't recognize it who have been there. Or live there. Well, I, you know? I I hear uh, tourists on the subway all the time, um, you know, pointing out, okay, over there's the Capitol. No, that's the White House. <laughs> yeah, very very basic stuff like that. But um, what Lafont was trying to do with this sacred geometry was to basically relating the power of the White House, the power of the Capitol. Um, symbolically using um, the the meaning behind um, ancient geometry. So mm -hmm. in the ancient world, the number five um, represented the earth and its people. So can you say um, a little bit about why that is or what that assumption is? So, so there were in the ancient world numbers and shapes had meaning there was there were certain things ascribed to it so for instance the um um the jewish flag the israeli flag has the uh the six six pointed star on it those are actually two triangles one facing up one facing down um which is essentially meaning uh, the earth reaching up to heaven and the heavens reaching down to earth so those sort of symbols were built in uh, everywhere mm -hmm. uh, so or even the, the seal that kind of like a lot of schools and institutions there's that lemon shaped seal like that and yeah, i went to swanee that's but it's the overlap of two spheres right it's, it's the like heaven the, and the earth. version of the yin yang symbol it's mm -hmm. two circles and and their edges touch each other's center it's called mm -hmm. a vetricapiscus it's the mm -hmm. reconciliation of opposites um, and in fact, L'Enfant used that um, in his uh, creating the trellis for Washington. Mm -hmm. 
So with the number five representing the earth and its people, the number six represented the gods in heaven. Wherever wherever this came from back in Mesopotamia, you know, 5,000 years ago. Um, and so what Lafon did, you'll often see people saying the Masons were designing secret symbols in the streets of Washington. The, and the it, Masons were assuming everyone thought that at the time because they, they did. All educated people kind of were operating on that on those other well, Yeah, what Lafont was doing was not some secret Masonic. And they weren't uh, seen in, in conflict with Christianity like, like now, people feel now if you explain it to them. All architects, all artists knew of these principles back then. It was common common knowledge. It's only secret now because we dispense with it. We we don't believe it. We forgot it, so it's a we secret. It. So it's a secret. Um, but the number six is represented by Connecticut and Vermont avenues reaching out from the White House, forming an equilateral triangle above the White House. Mm -hmm. The number five surrounding the Capitol building. The so, for instance, Pennsylvania Avenue, Massachusetts Avenue, uh, form the sides of five sided stars. Mm -hmm. Lafont didn't design the entire star, but parts of them are there. The metaphor is the tension between the gods in heaven, the president, the king, with number six, and the earth and its people at the Capitol building. Earth and heaven, how do you reconcile those two intention? Earthly politics, dirty, crappy methodology, compromises, all that with your heavenly aspirations. How do you reconcile those two both in yourself, your personal life, and as a nation, as a culture, as a civilization? How do you balance those two? Mm -hmm that's that's the metaphor that he built into the city well and it required this new design language because when you had europe you know the king is the king and the nobility are the nobility because they have land mm -hmm. and the land that is handed down by god to them means that they are different from you and that mm -hmm. was a pretty easy social order that you have peasants and you have nobles and that's that you know right, right. If you're landed you're a person and if you're not you're less than a person and then they, the British bring that system to America and then it doesn't work because you have this guy on the other end of the world being like, hey, I have some land in England, so I'm actually better than you and you need to do what I say. And George Washington, yeah. Man, I got yeah. and fields. I got a bunch of land. Who are you? Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, not happening and, anymore. And so there is this, the architect, you know, when he's designing that, the urban planners, you see that in a lot of American architecture, they're like, well, we can't just say, you know, church, castle and is the architecture anymore. It has to be more for the people. I mean, yes, the president is here and the there are, you know, nobles in America. But then how do we make the number six talk to the number five? You know, how do we make the earth and its people be in communion with? And, and all of a sudden you get this. And I mean, it's for lack of a better word, it's democratic. It's not just like, well, the church is beautiful. Everything else is a, a peon hovel with rats. You know, it's like. It, it, you can't that design language fails you know of right. nobles live in a castle and you live in a in a, a thatched hut you know because we ha how do you so I, i'm kind of failing to to put this succinctly but it, they needed a new language for design right. and a lot of right. dc is a struggle to find that well yeah lafont one of the reasons that i think he didn't really tell people what he was up to 
um, this was this was all unknown. There was a, an Englishman named Nicholas Mann uh, who wrote a book on um, L'Enfant's design for DC, and he he sort of reverse engineered the whole process and discovered what what um, L'Enfant was up to. Um, so L'Enfant didn't tell anybody about this trellis, and I think largely because of what you were saying. It was very old world. It was kind of too highfalutin for America in a sense. We're much more um, leveled. And it, what he was up to was um, too spiritual mm -hmm. and intellectual, perhaps, for this, new, this newly liberated um, uh, democratic uh, nation uh just wasn't thinking in those terms um but i think what something that you alluded to earlier that you know sort of the third phase of what we need to do of bringing the two sides back together um it, it's like with the the scientific revolution uh being this second phase of um you know human experience um it's it's like being a teenager in a sense, mm -hmm. being a 13 year old and experimenting and you've got to rebel against your parents uh, in order to create your own autonomy, uh, which is sort of intellectually what what science has done. Uh, we've broken away from the past, mm -hmm. uh, but you can't stay in that stage forever. You've got to mature into wholeness eventually. Um, so how do you take what LaFont was trying to do in, in making the city a metaphor in language and in form that the 21st century scientific community can understand and learn from. So that's what I'm trying to figure out. Well, and I, I think um, in the same way in Jungian psychology, the self isn't a destination. It's this process of kind of remembering where you come from, but you can't hold everything and then coming back to a, an ego, but still, you know, keeping in contact with a more spiritual center, but one you can't live in, you know, architecture is kind of that too. And in the article I had about Frank Lloyd Wright, I said what I liked about Wright's design that made him, I think, not just a modernist like Frank Gehry that's throwing out everything. I mean, I, I feel like with Frank Gehry, you could go to him on different days and to ask for the same design and you would get a different structure. You know, he would wad up a mm -hmm. piece of paper differently in AutoCAD. Um, <laughs> somebody like, like, right. You know, you would have, yeah. even if you wiped his memory, he would have designed almost the same structure because his process was pretty consistent. He said, I want to look at the natural world. I want to look at the function of the building. How do these people actually live? I'm going to study what they're doing. And then I'm going to look at a greater spiritual purpose of the space, which is always a guess. And sometimes he got it wrong. I mean, writes, I mean, but he put those things together, you know, this is the pattern in the natural world around it. And that's going to ripple through the building. This is the way that the people use the structure. I'm going to make that pattern fuse with the na nature. And then what is a, a greater spiritual ideal that I can infuse with this? And, you mm -hmm. know, the buildings are kind of like altars in that way. Um, yeah. But, uh, and, and that makes him, yeah, he threw out all of the, you know, uh, Art Nouveau, or not Art Nouveau, what's the word? Beaux Arts, you know, classes, mm -hmm. classical detail. But he also wasn't totally mo a modernist because he was adhering to this kind of pretty timeless structure. Um, well, that generation could do that because while they were creating a modernist sensibility, they were trained in that old Beaux-Arts Beaux manner. Mm -hmm. Now 
that's been gone for a hundred years. Nobody knows how to draw a circle anymore or a mm. curve. It's just straight lines. And um, uh, yeah, the, the the past has been so completely dismissed that my understanding of I went to architecture school, but I uh, was in the urban planning program. So no no design um, training in that sense. But what I see coming out of architecture school is not only does your design have to be different, but every time your process is going to be different as well, because you have to create a new one-time language and process to create this one-time building. Everything, it's almost like um, uh, a really severe form of, of jazz theory. You know, every piece of music has to be played differently every time you play it or you're just compromising. Mm -hmm. And um, well, Yeah, I, uh, it's interesting when you said that people are expected to reinvent a new process every time um, in architecture school. I, you know, I haven't been to architecture school, so I don't, I don't know trends in, in that in that field. Or at least, you know, I, I know them from the 70s vernacular architecture and stuff, but right, right. not after that. Yeah. Well, it's um, it it's a, a a really difficult thing that I think um, to try and overcome, because when you're in a mindset that discounts everything except itself, um, you know, it, I I think it takes a civilizational collapse. Um, I'm not sure that it's something that can be reformed incrementally. Well, it's like craftsmen in architecture, you know, right? Could come in and say, I kind of want this pattern to repeat and trust the tradesmen that were skilled enough to do that. But right. we don't have any skilled labor left in this country. We outsourced everything in the 80s, you know, but get tail end of industry, got sent overseas. We don't make anything. And um, we, we don't, that knowledge is institutional. It's like um, people were talking about, you know, the SpaceX and Boeing, all these companies are trying to build these big rockets to lift cargo. They were like, we were building the Saturn V. You know, we had the heavy lifter rocket. You know, I'm not t t terribly into rocket science, but they're like, we had all this stuff in the 70s and 80s. Why? This is 1950s designs, you know, built in the 60s and 70s. Like, right. why can't you just go back and do it? You already did it. And people were like, none of the infrastructure is there. None of the people are there. There are people who knew just how to make that ring. There were whole supply chains to get this type of mineral to be you know and all oh, of that's yeah. gone you have to restart yeah. with the ability to build that you have and we have less ability to build now in 2023 than we had in 1950. my it just makes me think my my ex-father-in-law uh was an aeronautical engineer uh, with pratt and whitney all he did for his 35-year career was design fan blades for jet engines mm -hmm. that's it that's all he did just how long what's the angle of the curve what mm -hmm. metal do you use that's that's all he did um and so with this sort of special which is a lifetime of experience that you can't just read a book or, or plug in a formula into right. a computer program and then get that expertise back right. it's half art half science right. even in, even in the hard sciences mm -hmm. yeah and that's discounted yeah well you know i know uh a lot of people, the decline in architecture and urban planning and cities you're talking about, you know, is written about in 1880. But um, a lot of the things people tie that to or I've heard people make a case for is is um, about planned obsolescence and, and the American families uh, access to debt. 
that what happens is that you you know you have this precious cameo that came from england with your family or whatever and it stays in the family and these things are special and they kind of define the family and we we would build a chair to be taken apart and sanded down and last a lifetime you know you're not building things that are disposable and then all of a sudden these companies figure out that you can make more money if you make the person buy the thing every year but the problem is they don't have enough money to do it so you sell in the future and you say okay well go ahead and get the washing machine today and then pay it off over two years and it'll break in a year and you'll need another one. And that, that changes the way that we live in this way where we, we stop trying to, um, we just start trying to survive, you know, and mm-hmm. get the thing that we have to have, not the thing that we want or that is beautiful or that enriches our lives, but just, okay, I have to have a car, I have to have a washing machine, I have to have a dishwasher, I have to have a garbage disposal, I have to have this. And then they're breaking and that process of maintenance and all that, um, becomes something that, yeah. That and takes the- away the time and psychic energy involved um you know, i'm quite well educated i've got a master's degree and some and, and uh, a number of um postgraduate um training um i'm not the smartest one on the on the on the bus but um by no means a dummy and it's overwhelming um you know, we have to choose our our trash hauler and where we get our electricity from and uh, who we're going to get our telephone service from and on and on and all these choices. And you have to do research and da da da. And it's it's just overwhelming. Just like like you said, surviving rather than flourishing uh, is is a full time effort. And I can understand why there's a generational shift um in so i spent a lot of time with with uh 30 somethings 20 somethings um on a regular basis and there's this attitude that um yeah whatever i'll i'll buy the the 20 dollar ikea chair instead of the 100 dollar you know better one because it's not going to be around i'm going to move anyway i just everything is disposable now that was uh, ikea's ad in sweden was like a lamp on the curb and it had this sad music and then it was like don't feel bad for the lamp that's in the trash and the guy's carrying a new lamp and <laughs> that was the original yeah it was like don't feel bad to throw all yeah. this stuff away yeah you can get well, a new one we do it to ourselves now yeah um you know we bought into it and it's just it's just easier to go along well, in a lot of modernism, you know, like AI or something, it's like people are like, hey, this is kind of a bad idea, but we can't quit doing it because this is the way it's going. And if I quit right. doing it, I'm behind, you know. Right. There's not, no one knows how to stop it, but they do agree that yeah. it doesn't, it's not a good idea to do the thing that we're doing today and we'll continue to do more tomorrow. I'm not sure what problem AI is intended to solve. Um well, and I think that, what, what are we going to be able to do in the future that we've never been able to do before? Well, nothing that I can, nothing I've been told. But the, the, the microcosm of American access to debt affecting all this stuff also spills out, you know, 20 years later into economy. And so it's like nobody wants to just say, all right, I'm going to go to the factory and make the thing and then go home and have this life and we can have a middle class. Everybody is like, we'll, we'll throw 80% of the country into poverty to try and gamble that maybe you'll be one of the ones that gets to be a billionaire. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right. and there's this strange thing where it's like, you can have a company that makes a really good product that works really well and nobody wants to fund it and, and it doesn't work. 
but you you can be a country that's a, a company that says well i'm going to be a monopoly and every we're just chasing this monopoly you know like amazon was a company that sold books and then they turned into this company that wanted to sell you every single thing that existed and mm-hmm. they're not even like a great bookstore anymore like that's forgotten you know just being a bookstore is not enough you know twitter was this thing that worked pretty well like people were sharing information and everything and it wasn't rewarded you know it didn't make money it had to be oh well, we have to have some crazy pipe dream vision but they never really pay off. I mean, Netflix, you know, borrowed all this money and made all this stuff. Now they're going bankrupt and trying to figure out how to make money. People don't realize none of these companies make money. They're still built, burning through venture capital. That's where we are. Mm-hmm. Like Spotify mm-hmm. loses money. Pandora loses money. Uber right. loses. And they lose billions of dollars, yes. you know, because yeah. they're, everyone's hoping, well, maybe when Uber is a complete monopoly, then the self-driving car will mean we don't have to pay the driver. And then that will be a model to profitability. But that's a pipe dream of a guess. You know, depending yeah. on AI being able to do yeah. certain things, or yeah, I don't even know what spot the pitch for Spotify being profitable is. I mean, they they lose you know a million dollars a day, um, but mm-hmm. all of these things are based on this fantasy of the future that's going to be huge. And there's not just I want to do a job. I'm going to go in and and do this thing well. That isn't rewarded anymore. Well, this is a a result of the mindset that started back in the 1600s. So that that scientific revolution. Um, you know, when, when you're not connected to something larger in a cosmological sense, this is the result. Mm-hmm. Um, or the alternative would be what, what, uh, uh, the French revolution, the communist revolution, uh, provided, uh, which is the death of tens of millions of people. So, um, there there has to be as as little as we understand or respect the spiritual value of religion uh, if it's not there uh there the results are not to be surprising um this is just what happens well i mean uh, and maybe another way of saying that is that if there's no higher spiritual principle if there's no higher aspiration or ability to transcend our you know base instincts then all life is is just this competition that is pretty soulless and mm-hmm. and and pretty um, uh, depersonalizing. Well, that's that's what uh, Nietzsche said, and and most people misunderstand his his um, quote: "God is dead." Uh, people today think that was a a, a call to um, liberation, mm-hmm. and he saw that very much as a disaster. Society losing its center. Society loses its center. It's going to fall apart and explode. And yeah, World War One, World War Two, the entire twentieth century, uh, following his prediction, uh, saw how many tens, hundreds of millions of people slaughtered. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're in a point of relative peace right now. And they couldn't tell you why, you know, World War and One. They, they like you're looking right. at the world, and it's like, what did what did we do? Why did we do yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Well, for the same reasons that you personally, uh, you, me, everyone else, all of us as individuals, commit small little mistakes, errors, so on and so forth. Anything that you see going wrong in society is going wrong in you as well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
One of the things, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Right, go ahead. There's Stop. a little bit of a lag. Sometimes I'll start talking and then I hear like the middle of a word and the, I think mm-hmm. the noise canceling is shaving off the beginning and the ends of the right. talking sometimes. That's all right. Go ahead. But I was curious. I mean, one of the things that, you know, the Venus of Illendorf is a pretty big one where, you, and if, for those who aren't familiar, like one of the earliest, they, they call them like the earliest religious artifacts or something. And, and the reason is, you know, when mankind's evolving and, the, the things that you find, you can find some tools and things, but they're practical. They're a knife or a stabber or a, you know, scraper or something. And then all of a sudden you see these things that are just for beauty. And that it's telling you that people are kind of trying to figure out a deeper spiritual or artistic function, that they're not just worried about surviving. They're also trying to figure out, you know, what makes them alive or how to be alive, or there's some question about identity. And so the first figures and largely caves around France are these, um, like very round, very uh, rotund women figures that they're guessing were about fertility. And, you know, the, the fattest woman makes is the most healthy and burst the most babies. And it was some kind of, uh, you know, uh, maybe the supernatural blessing of fertility or just a honoring of fertility or something. But the Venus of Willendorf is, is one of the most famous. I don't think it's the oldest, but mm-hmm. it's maybe one of the first found. Um and that's a big place where humanity is looking at itself and they're not, the brain has developed precunious. Um, and so it's able to perceive itself as this thing outside of the world around it. And no longer is it just processing information, it's actually perceiving it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and part of that perception is self-perception. And then we wonder what we are. It creates this anxiety and all these problems. What's right. the joke is, you know, God took a perfectly good monkey and gave it anxiety. Um, and But another kind of big formative thing i think is the first cities like we always assumed because it's the way modern society works that when people came together to build these cities and it, it happened a couple different places it wasn't just like one spot that they did we did it because it was more safe or that we would be able to have more food or that quality of life was better and that you know more people kind of doing work well that's a pretty industrial revolution idea really when you go and you look at these cities that people are coming together to build the quality of life went down People had less access to food. They had to work more. Um, they lived less long. Yet they still did it. We're called, you mm-hmm. know, to build some kind of project there. And I always thought that was an interesting, right? An interesting idea. Yeah, that's the the usual. Um, not I don't know about the usual, but quite often you'll hear that that um, cities are are simply um, that artifact of the patriarchy um, in which leaders could control. The masses so cities and religion um, have that negative connotation because they're all about control and i i think what you said about being called to do something um yeah we're we evolutionarily we grew out of our um our monkey background we still have the monkey brain that the Buddhists talk about. This brain is way back here and it's still jumping around. Um, But that process of psychological awakening Mm -hmm. seems to provoke us to to do, to create Mm -hmm. um, in ways that no other species does. Mm -hmm. Lots of other species will, uh, prairie dogs make prairie dog towns and Bees make hives and lots of animals make homes for themselves, birds in their nests. But humans go in a different direction that isn't necessarily practical. We do things for metaphorical reasons. 
Mm -hmm. there's some concept or idea that doesn't help us survive, but we think makes life better somehow. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the strongest drives we have. And you, you, you just can't deny it. Uh, it's like the, the writing of this book for me. Um, I was impelled to do that. Mm -hmm. it wasn't something that I was planning on doing or had always hoped to do. Mm -hmm. I was, in a sense, I was sort of forced to do it. Um, so there's something that's trying to burst out from the unconscious and make itself real. Mm -hmm. And for me, the greatest, uh, certainly the largest thing that we build physically is a city. Mm -hmm. It is the largest manifestation of human desire. Um, and we've really done it very, very badly uh, for three, four hundred years, uh, at least a hundred years here in the United States. Um, how do you how do you reorient that? So I think I think Lafont was pointing the way. Lafont did not have any particular personal um, spiritual attitude. I don't think he was um, a particularly thoughtful person. We would probably call him, uh, oh, he'd be somewhere on the, the autistic spectrum today. Yeah. Uh, maybe something of a narcissist. Well, I think a lot of obsessive creatives, maybe they're not all on the spectrum. Some of them are, but they have that similar type, you know, the yeah. Steve Jobs, the whatever. They see this vision right. and they're they're forcing it yeah. to be yeah. born. And it, it yeah. the people who have that impulse a little less lightly maybe don't get that project done. You know, they don't ram yeah. it through. Yeah. Well, he was he was not well liked. Um, Why was he selected? What was it that made them select him? Washington deeply respected him, knew that he was kind of, again, today we would at a minimum call him a jerk. <laughs> um, but um, so L'Enfant's story, he was the son of a court architect, a uh, court artist um, under Louis the Fourteenth. His father uh, painted all the grand uh, artwork uh, for the king. and. Um, so L'Enfant was raised in Versailles and the courts of the king and so on and so forth. Um, so he had that classic Baroque understanding of art and design. Um, and he was well-placed to end up in a very, very um, socially uh, upwardly, um, upward movement uh professionally and socially uh but when he was whatever 20 years old or something he came to america to fight in the revolution i think he was very much um passionate about glory and all that sort of thing and, mm. you know. there wasn't going to be a war in france during his lifetime he needed to, to find one <laughs> he went and found one um and he was he served under washington Valley Forge, he met uh, Hamilton and uh, all the major players of the time. And he just had an artistic flair. He worked as a, a military engineer um, 
during the war building uh, redoubts for um, uh, cannon and so forth, uh, and was wounded during the war and ended up as an architect in New York. And his major project there was um, two. First was converting um, City Hall in New York to the Continental uh, Congressional Hall where Congress could meet. And he did a fine job there. He was hired to uh, design some of the, the early coins and medallions and so forth for the nation. And he designed the first inauguration uh, for George Washington, uh, put together the whole, the whole big uh, event. Um, and then it came time to select the uh, location for the new capital. And that's really, really what LaFont had hoped to do. And he wrote to Washington specifically asking for that job. And, and uh, Washington gave it to him. So they had that, that personal connection. And Washington knew of his, um, his skill. So, I don't really know much about Washington's design taste. I mean, it was what I guess you'd call that colonial architecture at that point. And he had an ovular room in a house that he liked. And so the White House architect kind of, all I know about his architectural taste is that he liked oval rooms, or at least the architect thought that. Um, that may be Thomas Jefferson. Um, there's an oval room in uh, Monticello. I uh, thought um, the White House design was... Um, yeah, that was that was James Hoban, I believe, who designed the White House. Lafont had designed uh, buildings for both the White House and the president. No, I don't mean Lafont designing the White House. I just was saying I knew that when Jefferson or when uh, Washington was choosing the White House plan, that that was what the architect. I don't remember the name of the architect of the White House, but that he had he had done a bunch of oval rooms because he thought that Washington liked one from his house. That's, That's all I know about his architectural taste. What about Washington, other than the friend connection, would make him choose LaFont's designs? Well, he really did. Um, so what's interesting, Washington and, and Jefferson had two very, very different mindsets. Um, Jefferson despised cities. And Jefferson had come up with a design for the city that was like 10 square blocks, he wanted the, like the, rural agrarian kingdoms, like the, all these farmsteads surrounded by, um, you know, farmland, basically, right. like the, the house as the city. But then the thing that was so silly about that is it's like, who are you selling the product to? If everyone is living on a farm, there right. is nobody who is buying your stuff right. so you can drink all this French wine. That's um, right. You know, but Jefferson wasn't really, city. well, he he wasn't that great at you know, finances or economics as we you know, had some good yeah, ideas yeah, about yeah. metaphor and, and government, but I mean, yeah. he dies penniless library of Congress exists just because they threw him up by buying his library. So he, it was a, he couldn't afford to eat. Um, I mean, he just really sat back on his farm talking about how cities were bad. Everyone should live on a farm ordering luxurious products from France right. and Italy, right. uh, you know, into going into debt from cities <laughs> in Europe writing yeah. about how he hated cities. Like, it's just, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, so silly. There's, there's no farm without a city and there's no city without a farm. Um, so there, that was a real tension early on. Um, but Washington was very much more of a, uh, an empire builder. Mm -hmm. um, he really, although it was interestingly, it was Jefferson who, who completed the Louisiana purchase, uh, which is where in fact he, 
the reason that our Midwest today is so spread out and gridded, um, Jefferson basically laid out the entire area of the Louisiana Purchase, what we now know as the Midwest. How many states? 10, 15 states, whatever it is. Um, in 160-acre plots um, in a grid. Um, and yeah, he, he thought that we should all be yeoman farmers and that would, that yeah. would be heaven on earth. But um, Washington was very different. He understood that the United States had the potential to become um, a global superpower, not just economically um, or politically, but philosophically. Um, as using the Oregon and the city on a hill idea, you know, he he felt like the old order was dying, and he was ushering in a new one with birthing this nation that was right. ultimately going to be the model of all nations. And and the whole point was was democracy, mm -hmm. spreading democracy. That's always been what the U.S. has been about. Um, and in order to, um, in people's minds, infuse. Um, a lot of hope and desire uh, and understanding of this, he and Lafont uh, both agreed that the capital city should be absolutely magnificent and mm -hmm. reflect um, that level of, of value in its design. It's designed almost like a garden. Like you look at the layout, it looks like, you know, the, the, the gardens at Versailles or something, the way it kind of unfolds and is, is bifurcated with streets. I mean, it's not designed the way that European cities were. Well, in fact, L'Enfant grew up with um, spending time in Versailles. And a lot of people will, a lot, some authors have, have pointed to that as the source of L'Enfant's inspiration. But L'Enfant did something different. In Versailles, the, the angled pathways and streets all converge in one particular place, the king's bedroom. That's where all visually all the paths lead to the king's bedroom. That's where that's where all the power lay. What Lafon was doing was something much more dispersed. The power was in in three places. He placed um, the Capitol building at the center of the people, not the White House. The Capitol is the centerpiece. The White House also um, the streets. Both for the Capitol and the White House, the streets don't terminate on the center of the building. They terminate in the doorways. Mm -hmm. So when you look at a map, you'll see, for instance, Pennsylvania Avenue going through um, in front of the White House. But it's actually kind of offset mm -hmm. uh, because the streets don't intersect in the middle of the building. They arrive at the doorways. Mm -hmm. People are welcome here. That's the idea. Um, so Lafont had um, and Washington both shared this this vision of a very very different political order. Um, mm -hmm. So Novus Ordo Seclorum was, you know, that new world order was um, very much what they were all about. Well, and I think that was something that Washington saw, too, because of what we were talking about in the beginning, that idea of land that he saw this country had land that went on and on. Like It sort of threw a wrench in every America's infinite, re seemingly infinite resources sort of threw a wrench in everyone's 
um, every European philosopher's plans. You know, even Marx was like, I don't, you know, like what my do do labor theory doesn't really work if land is free, but eventually they'll run out of it. I will, you'll see, you know, and Jung, you know, Jung was afraid of America. He saw the um, capacity for um, the kind of charismatic religious movements and um, mm -hmm. just power. Um, but I think Washington, when he, it wasn't that he was in this disagreement where he was like, well, I want to leave um, Britain and they're taxing us or something in the way that Franklin and some of the other ones were. And I think he really saw this old order that says that your power is handed down by God because you have a plot of land in England does not work anymore. <laughs> There's all this land, man. Like you're not going to get to tell me or these people what to do. And he, it wasn't as personal for him. I think he felt like it was an inevitability. If he didn't do it, it would be done by someone else. Well, I, it was I, just, there was a breaking away that was going to happen and mm -hmm. that all of the European order was based on that. So America had to represent this new thing. Um, that was right. the, the next thing that they couldn't see there yet. And I think that took some time for the founding fathers, uh, certainly a, a certain group of them, because they, they were the American, American equivalent of the aristocracy. Mm -hmm. um, they were all the big wealthy land, landowners. Uh, and what they were doing was creating a system in which their legacy personally wasn't going to continue. Mm -hmm. um, most of the founding fathers at the beginning of the war, I don't think wanted to leave. They didn't want to break away. They simply wanted more autonomy, but they, they loved their connection to England and so forth. But over the, over the course of time, um, the relationship with England got, got so bad. It's just goofy little things like the, um, the Boston Tea Party. Mm -hmm. uh, what what caused that the interesting story there um from what i understand the mogul empire in india had collapsed um and england uh through the east india company basically took over and for a, ver a variety of economic reasons all of a sudden the the tea um tea trade was in an uproar and they had all this tea and they there was no place to ship it um so they decided to bring a whole lot of tea to the americas um and what they ended up doing was actually lowering the price of tea but adding a tax to it so let's say before all of this happened tea cost a dollar a pound whatever it was um after when when after the east india company uh took on uh control when the mogul empire collapsed um tea was down to 90 cents a pound but the british added a five cent tax to it so tea was actually cheaper but there was now a tax mm -hmm. what a stupid thing to rebel against we're giving you something cheaper Everyone Why wins. Are you so angry? But, <laughs> but it was just this, it was one of those Jungian moments where the archetype breaks in and, and uh, you know, it's, it's time for a large change. This is how we're going to make it happen. Well, I think that is one of those kind of very American archetypes is freedom for the lack of a better word, but it's a rebellious freedom. Like 
we have the we have the right to do this even though it's the wrong thing to do is a fight yeah. that we have over and over yeah. again. It's like, yeah, I, I guess. I'm gonna you hurt know. my I'm gonna hurt myself yeah. on principle just to show you. Yeah, you do get that. Um there there is um that kind of trickster archetype. Um yeah. and, and that's what Gimbal is afraid of with, with America. There's just so much power and capability in a very, very image psychologically immature uh as a, as a as a culture mm-hmm. yeah I, I think he saw it as a teenage country you know it mm-hmm. was it was starting to act up and rebel against dad its mineral deposits were just coming in and um <laughs> right you know, right kind of going through a, an awkward growth spurt and yeah mm-hmm. but but i think it was necessary um you know when when you think about um young and his reconciliation of opposites well, there has to be an opposite to reconcile. In a sense, we had to go through, at least up to this point, 500 years of the scientific revolution and this technological um, bureaucratic way of thinking in order to have something to integrate and mm-hmm. bring that together. Well, and other countries had anchored identity much hundreds of years before the scientific revolution. So they sort right. of had... Um, more of an anchor even though that changed a lot of things america was one of the first countries built solely on it you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right so it's it's going to be uh where would we say we are now um you know the, the the frat boy is uh graduated from college and has to get a, a grown-up job mm-hmm. now so to speak well and i think that's one of the things that gets lost in american history too is it's like in the middle of the industrial revolution is the, the main growth of america and so some of the reasons so much industry came here was that you couldn't reinvent the same thing in in europe um but you could steal patents in america because they they didn't they were going to extradite you so you could just memorize the way that this cotton right. gin worked or this right. new, you know stamping mm-hmm. factory and then draw it on a napkin sail to america and become a millionaire you know yeah <laughs> with this brand new technology yeah. Yeah, that's exactly. Well, that's that's how tea got to India. There was no tea in India. It was purely Chinese, and they controlled it very tightly. And the English uh, sent a spy um, to, oh, I don't know, some somewhere in China, stole a bunch of seeds and took them to Darjeeling uh, in India and started the Indian, because the Chinese were starting to, to tax too much or something like that so yeah this is this is how the world works yeah well it's interesting stuff i mean i guess maybe to to wrap up like if if somebody you know says okay you're talking about all these highfalutin ideas that you should have spirituality in your bricks and mortar and under your streets but what does that look like specifically what are you advocating for us to do differently um you know, somebody like Creer wants us to go back to the American, to the early European city. He wants to turn all the buildings back into to, to Greek temples and yeah. to have a pedestrian-oriented society instead of a car-oriented society. I mean, he goes as far as to say that no one should be able to use any building materials made out of petroleum; that it should be natural. Um, and you know, Duani is very much in the walkable city. And the city should be used the way that um, they should. They, we should think about their function. I mean, what what are your you know rules for the lack of a better word? What is what is your mm-hmm. thesis mm-hmm. about what we need to do? It's interesting you mentioned um, Creer's perspective on you know, going back to some ancient way. My understanding is that Hillman's real desire was for us to 
all go back and, and worship Aphrodite. That was the one question he couldn't answer. There's a famous, I mean, you never see Hillman speechless. I mean, he never shut up. And uh, somebody from Canada, I think, professor said, you know, you keep saying that we need to go back to polytheism. We need to go back to Greek. I think if you let Hillman go, he would have gone back to the mother cult. I mean, he wanted to totally regress into the unconscious. And I mean, he, he would have kept going. But the guy yeah. said, you keep talking about polytheism and the Greeks and all this stuff. Why should we do that? They abandoned that way for monotheism. Right. Like the, Greek, the Greeks gave all of that up to convert to Christianity, which is why there's so much Greek inside of it. So why, if they did that, why should we go back? And Hillman's like, uh, uh, uh I don't uh, know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He doesn't yeah. have an answer. Hadn't, hadn't thought that one through yet. Um, what I would, so the book is in large part a, a sort of an exposition of my perspective on what we've been talking about. Uh, the the history of uh, human psychological awakening, but I also discuss um, you know the the process of building a city um, from a design perspective, and in that I basically go through the um, design elements that you'll find in uh, the Congress for New Urbanism, mm -hmm. the Charter of the New Urbanism. Um, and I get into, there's actually a chapter on finance, um, how we finance the places we build. Um, so what's the old adage? Um, form follows function. Um, and from a developer's perspective, form follows finance. And so a lot of uh, issues that we have now as far as an individual building and public infrastructure have to do with the way we finance things and, and the way that, um, you know, we simply can't do certain things because of the way that the money flows. Mm -hmm. um, so, and the money flows in certain ways, in certain ways because of the, the value that we, they place on it. Um, it's an end in itself rather than a tool. Mm -hmm. Um, as far as the specific design elements, one of the things that I did was to take, uh, so the issues that we're faced with now, um, global warming, climate change, um, the death of shopping malls and office parks and so on and so forth, there's a real shift physically nationwide we are vastly over retailed and, mm -hmm. so retail and, and now brick and mortar stores are going away in favor of online shopping so we have so all these abandoned market. walmarts we're converting into exactly. mega churches and all of these abandoned strip malls that we're converting into you know vape stores right yeah so what do you do with that stuff and title loan stores too <laughs> and so um I conducted an experiment years ago. I was the chairman of the city planning commission in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and their big shopping mall in town off to the side. Um, uh, more recently, um, they have lost something like 60% of their, their stores and they're struggling just like hundreds of other malls across the country. So I decided to do a little personal experiment and use something akin to LaFont's methodology to turn this, what was 160 acre shopping mall, 200 acre shopping mall into a walkable neighborhood. 
Uh, and so I created that sort of an underlying trellis, geometric trellis on the property. Um, and out of that grew a street pattern of a new traditional neighborhood um, that is comparable to the downtown of the old historic city. And the points um, and lines and angles of that geometric trellis form the location of the entrance to a park, a children's playground, a library, a city hall. In other words, it creates a network of sort of like a dispersed civic commons so that you're walking from one place to another, but you're always a part of the community. Um, think of, um, so I was raised Episcopalian, um, not Catholic, but we also, like the Catholics, had the Stations of the Cross in a church mm. where the interior of the church. I grew up Episcopalian too. That was, we used to call it Catholic light because. Okay. I remember confirmation class was like, uh, it'd be like, this is what Baptists believe. This is what Catholics believe. We don't really tell you. You can pick, you know, yeah. a new one. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, there's nothing that confirmation yeah. class wasn't really right, yeah, that's fine. Not anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in the interior of a church, there will be a series of uh, works of art, statuary, paintings, and so forth, tapestries. Um, that depict the last days of Christ's life um, before the crucifixion. Um, so they're like these little stations of learning. And so perhaps the idea is to expand those stations of the cross out throughout the entire city so that mm -hmm. there are points of inspiration and learning on a path that you can create throughout the entire city. Mm -hmm. So this might be connections from open space to another, um, civic structures like city hall or the library or the school, what have you, community garden, um, and link these things thematically so that they together they tell a story um, and provoke in you questions. Mm -hmm. uh, through the urban design and also the um, the elements of design that are placed in there. Um, so one of the, one of the things that uh, Lafont failed to do was basically tell people what he was doing. Mm -hmm. So it was not clear that these two points of the Capitol and the White House represented something larger. You know, we have some vague notion. Um, but what I think we need now is something clear and specific. Mm -hmm. um, well, so if I mean, and maybe maybe a good a good uh, wrap up is you know we see what Jung uh, would have designed as an architect because he put a lot of thought into Bollingen and he um, built as much of Bollingen by hand as he could. Um, so we kind of see what his architectural ideal was, but. If Jung was to build a city, you know, if he was to be an urban planner, I mean, what do you, how do you think he would have thought? How, how would he have, um, you know, laid out something well, like that? He, he left a little bit of a legacy like that. Um, I guess it's in the Red Book, I think. Um, mm -hmm. um, it came out of his um, Liverpool dream, right? Where he had that dream of the tree and the lamppost on an island in the middle of the city. Um, and there's a beautiful little rendition of that 
um, given his background and history and so forth, that has a very much a medieval look. If you know the uh, the Italian um, military town, uh, Palma Nova, mm-hmm. shaped like a star uh, with a moat around it. That's that's kind of that probably influenced what Jung did with his Liverpool dream, mm-hmm. uh, something like that. Um, so there are a lot of possibilities to do a lot of different things on these old abandoned sites like shopping malls and so forth. Existing towns, that's going to be a really, really uh, much more difficult sort of effort, I think, to sort of retrofit this concept into existing places. Mm. I think it's necessary when we look at maps of um, uh, sea level rise, for instance, um, in the coming decades, you know, New York is at risk, my home area of Tidewater, Virginia. Uh, if they're building anything in Miami, it's just so unreal to me. Yeah, Miami <laughs> is, I've already Millions seen, of dollars of new construction in Miami. It's, it's going to be and, two feet underwater in 10 years. No, they already are. You can see photographs of Miami Beach under six inches of water um, on a regular basis now. So all of those people are going to have to decant somewhere. And we're starting to see after Katrina, half of New Orleans ended up in Houston. So how do these sort of receiver cities prepare themselves for an influx of refugees? So by by real estate in the Midwest, is that what you <laughs> there actually there's been a um, a map made of um areas which are um most likely to um uh be able to receive uh, an influx of new people um the, i think the safest place is something like the center of michigan something mm-hmm. like that where you know no floods no hurricanes no tornadoes um temperature is going to be okay um so communities if we simply respond to this sort of um environmental crisis in sort of a panic mode we've got to build more stuff quickly because people are coming so just get it done um like an engineering project um we're going to be creating future slums um so this sort of transition has to be done thoughtfully and i think for the first time in history Humanity has the opportunity to sort of look ahead and see major global changes coming, not just environmentally, but cosmologically. You know, the way we think about ourselves and the world is changing. And and we have the opportunity to prepare for that. And you have faith that we will. (laughs) Eventually. But I really don't think um, Churchill said um, Americans will always do the right thing after they've tried everything else. And I think we will fight tooth and nail to hang on to the status quo until we're forced uh, to change our ways. So, yeah, it won't be pretty. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming on. I would love, um, you, if people want to buy the book, um, is there a way that you prefer them to do that? Uh, do you, you make more money if they buy it directly? Um, yeah, I, I actually, um, if I hand you a book by hand, it's, uh, it's best, but, uh, most sales will be through Amazon. Okay. Uh, you're going to do an audio book version. So many of my, uh, Eventually. 
Yeah. All my, my uh, younger people, like just everybody under 30, that, that's how they consume all their books yeah. at work and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah there is an ebook for $9.99. The hard copy from Amazon is, I think, $35. Um, Barnes and Noble and three or four other outlets as well. Hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of um, most cities have like a uh, or or states have like a young society or whatever, and they do you know um, talks you know mm -hmm. once a week or whatever. But um, the they Jungians like Jungian thought you know spilling into other um, areas, and that may be a good mm -hmm. marketing thing if you make it. Well, see if they'll email fact, their group or let you come talk. Um, I know there's one yeah, here. I gave Atlanta's a, is a lot bigger than Birmingham's. You probably want to go to the bigger cities. We, Chicago's incredibly active too. Yeah, um, Chicago, very definitely. Um, I did give a, a lecture at the Young Society here in Washington two years ago, I think, um, <laughs> and met James Hollis um, oh, yeah. through that process. And um, fabulous guy. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I'm I'm wide open for for. In fact, I've got uh, um, one lecture uh, to my professional uh, new urbanist group here in town, um, and looking for more. Well, great. That sounds wonderful. I well, good luck to you. And is there anything that you'd like to add or a website we can check out? Anything that that helps you other than people getting the book on Amazon? Well, I am in the process of, of starting a nonprofit uh, and an associated website, uh, the Institute for Symbolic Urbanism. Okay. Uh, and that is in process, and it will be basically the um, uh, the ground on which I will try to um, refine some of these ideas into something workable for for the future. If, if you have an interest in Young and place, psychological growth and mm -hmm. urbanism. Um, it would be great to uh, to be able to put the two together into um, sort of a new way of thinking about and doing urbanism. Uh, you didn't want to go for uh, the new new urbanism or Congress for the new new urbanism. <laughs> you know, there's a friend of mine has a a um, Kevin Klinkenberg. Uh, has a uh, a really great podcast and where he's questioning with the viability of the Congress for New Urbanism. It may be um, um, spreading out into other groups. Um, mm -hmm. you know, there's the um, uh, Strong Towns movement. Yeah, um, all those. So yeah, we'll I don't think they all agree on the philosophy anymore, like they did in the beginning. Um, it's starting to have new new hypotheses about what the best path forward is. Well, that's that's kind of a good thing. Um, after after COVID and what's happened with downtown office space, for instance, there's a lot of rethinking that has to be done. New urbanism started out as a way of doing better suburbia. Um, maybe that's that has been rethought quite a bit, um, and it may not need to be the focus anymore. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. I, I appreciate your time. Um, and I, I guess, uh, what, do you have the name of the website or can you can you say that or we'll put it in the um, I think it's just isu.org. Okay, isu.org. Oh, I'm sorry, um, symbolicurbanism.org. Okay, symbolicurbanism.org. Yeah, and it'll be up in, oh Lord, maybe six weeks, September. Okay, you want us to hold the episode until it's live or go ahead and put it, put it out? Um, 
you can hold it for a couple of weeks. That would be fine. Well, uh, it's totally up to you. Whatever's more helpful. I don't know if you want to, if the book's for sale, you know, you can sometimes yeah. the Amazon algorithm likes more, you know, the, if you have more out the gate, then it, it keeps it up there longer. Um, yeah, you know what? Go ahead and go ahead and do it um, um, as you will. No need to wait. Okay. Uh, because uh, I'm, I'm actually going to bring in some uh, some professional help to what I've done so far on the website is kind of amateurish. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, it might be a couple more months than I anticipate. So go ahead. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll have you go ahead and get that live. And mm-hmm. thank you for sitting down with us. I'm going to go ahead and stop the recording. And um, but be sure and check out Will's website and other projects as they as they come available.